Well, hello. Welcome to Dark Stories from the Campfire. This week we present two dark stories with the theme of true crime. Have you ever wondered if you're getting the whole story, that they are only telling you what they want you to know? It's probably true. Our first dark story concerns Andrew Turner, whose body was found on the side of the highway, leaving investigators confused as to the time and cause of death. As detectives begin to piece together Andrew's bizarre behavior over his last few days, they discover a mysterious game could be the cause, and Andrew's body has one last message to uncover. We present to you a found card. At approximately 9.30 p.m. on Monday, June 9th, the body of Andrew Turner was discovered and called into police. His body was found by Margaret Williamson, who at the time had been driving across the country and had pulled off to the side of the road to stretch her legs for a bit and to smoke a cigarette. In the police report, she said she didn't see the body initially due to it being dark, with only the headlights of the cars driving along the highway offering sporadic illumination to the surroundings. As she was walking around smoking, she noticed what looked like a pile of clothes not too far from her. It was only then she thought she heard a whimper or a whispering coming from the direction of the pile that she investigate further. And when she saw a hand poking out from the pile of clothes, she grew concerned and instantly called the police. Within an hour, the area was roped off and investigators began their work, piecing together Andrew Turner's last few days and how he might have ended up on the side of the road. An autopsy was performed the following day, and while the body did show signs of heavy bruising throughout the chest, legs, and arms, investigators were unable to determine a cause of death. Even more unsettling, they were unable to determine the time of death. Four hours before the body had been discovered, it had stormed. Both the body and clothes were damp, indicating that they had been exposed to the rain. However, there were no signs of rigor mortis. In fact, the medical examiner would write in her notes that the body wasn't completely cold yet. It was as though Andrew Turner had died five minutes before being brought in for the autopsy. Detectives searched Andrew's clothes for clues, but only found one thing. In his pocket was a folded index card with four words written on it in red. Andrew Turner was born 16 years earlier, in February, to Bobby and Angela Turner. Detectives would learn from Bobby and Angela that Andrew wasn't a particularly outgoing child, shy actually, though he did like to play pranks. The pranks were always harmless fun, with his favorite being to hide underneath or behind piles of things than jumping out at anyone passing by. Bobby said that though his son would find this type of prank amusing, he was also not very good at it. There were times that father could see the top of Andrew's head or his hand sticking out of wherever he may be hiding. But as a good father, he would always pretend to act scared when Andrew would jump out. As Andrew grew older and reached his early teens, the pranks had gone away, along with his shyness, and he began to entertain people with his joke. Friends would reveal that the jokes Andrew told weren't very funny in a traditional sense, but were quirky enough, and since he told them with such enthusiasm, they couldn't help but be taken in. He developed a reputation of being the class clown, and it wasn't uncommon for other students, or even his next-door neighbor if he saw Andrew working in the yard, to approach him and request that he help make them laugh, especially if they were having a rough day or just need to take their mind off of something for a few moments. Andrew was always happy to oblige. Always curious, Andrew could be found every Thursday in the school library after the final bell rung. The school librarian would tell investigators that at 3.30 every Thursday he would be in front of her desk requesting a new book for a new subject he was interested in learning or at least reading about. One week it was skateboarding. The next week was microphones, and another week was Cowboys of the Old West. These requests always seemed innocent enough, and though Andrew could have easily looked these books up by himself, the librarian was happy for the company and the conversation. 
My friend had told him about a game, maybe from the Victorian days, called Spirits, and he was curious in how true the game was or what kind of history it had. Andrew had not shown any interest in the paranormal before and the librarian was taken back, but did explain that the school does not offer those type of books to students. As you might not be aware, Spirits is played with two people who sit on opposite ends of a short table with a glass cup between them. One of the participants has an index card that reads yes, while the other has a card that reads no. The object of the game is to write a yes or no question in red ink. Then, when the question is read out loud, a spirit is supposed to answer. According to the local newspaper, the town star, it was Andrew's best friend Sean who had suggested the two friends play the game. All the information that has been released to the public indicates the evening the two boys played the game that the results were far from satisfactory. In fact, Sean would tell investigators that about after a half an hour of seeing the dark and reading questions, they began to grow bored, and after receiving no response to Andrew asking if someone or anything would like to hear a joke, the two friends gave up and decided to watch a movie instead. However, as investigators would later learn through interviews with Andrew's friends, the game would have a longer effect on Andrew than anyone would have initially assumed. According to the detective's notes, Andrew began acting strange the following day, almost paranoid. For several days, Andrew isolated himself and was seen by at least two relatives walking along the highway, fidgeting with his ears. He reportedly told one friend it felt like someone was breathing or trying to whisper something in his ears, even when he was by himself. His normal Thursday visits to the school library had suddenly stopped, and about a week later, Andrew had ceased responding to calls or texts. Apparently, Andrew's parents thought he was going through some sort of phase, and for the most part left him alone, though they did tell him on their rare occasion Andrew left his room. If he needed anything, they were here for him. Andrew would nod before heading back up to his room, which his parents did notice was always dark, even during the day. They never saw any light coming from the bottom of the door. As the weeks passed, Andrew began to act more strangely. Friends would tell investigators that they would receive random texts from him at all hours only containing one or two words. One text read, I see, while another text, which was sent at 3.30 a.m., read, gone, and another simply said, breathe in. At one point, Andrew was found face down behind a local fast food restaurant. The police report noted scratches were found around his head in the asphalt, probably done by something sharp. When questioned though, Andrew claimed he couldn't remember how he got to the restaurant, let alone how the scratches were made. While Andrew didn't talk much to the on-scene police officer who was attempting to ascertain what had happened, he did make a comment that the officer found odd. When asked if he was okay to stand, Andrew reportedly said, it feels like something is heavy on my shoulder and weighing me down. At this time, Andrew was sitting up and the officer, who did take some notes of bruising on the left shoulder, didn't see anything else that would account for Andrew being weighed down. Andrew's parents now began to grow concerned and realized that this maybe wasn't simply a phase. For the entire car ride home, Bobby and Angela tried to speak with their son, only to be met with silence. They pleaded with him to let them help, or at least give them some insight into what is going on, but all Andrew did was stare out the window at the passing cars. When they arrived home, Andrew quickly went to his room and didn't come out for two days. At one in the morning on June 8th, three days after Andrew was found behind the restaurant, a loud crash was heard coming from his room, as though something had been thrown through the window. When his parents opened the door to see what had caused the sound, all they saw was the bed had been overturned, but the windows remained intact. They could not find Andrew anywhere. 
They drove around the neighborhood for over an hour looking for their son before calling the police to report his disappearance. Within an hour, detectives were at the Turner's house talking with Andrew's parents and calling through his room for clues. None were to be had. However, in the missing persons report, it was noted that there were scratches on the inside of the door. Andrew's parents had no idea those were there, stating they had never heard any noises coming from his room. Other than their son never leaving the dark room, his parents never noticed anything odd going on at all. Throughout the rest of the day, investigators talked to friends and neighbors looking for any clues as to what might have happened to Andrew, but nothing was discovered. Volunteers would search the area, including along the highway where Andrew had been sighted. Again, nothing turned up. Due to the incoming storm on the second day, the search was temporarily called off, with plans to pick back up the following morning. At approximately 9.30 that night, however, Margaret Williamson would call in Andrew's body. Only after searching his clothes did investigators find their first real clue. Inside one of his pockets was a folded index card. On one side of the card, written in red ink, was the word yes. On the back, also written in red ink, and apparently by someone who was shaking, was the phrase, make me laugh. Before we continue with our dark stories, let's take a moment to catch our breath and try to regain our senses. Our second story concerns one Judge O'Connor, who is always seen as being fair. But after sentencing Thomas Cooper to death, a mysterious drumming sound begins to haunt him. As a judge loses his senses, this is up to his daughter and nephew to unravel the mystery of what's in the house. We present to you, Drummer Boy. Funeral for Judge Patton O'Connor was held on a rainy October afternoon. Five days earlier, the judge was found roaming the hallways of his large estate, muttering, make the drumming stop, please make it go away, before collapsing. Later that night, a pistol shot rang out, waking everyone in the house, and it was shortly thereafter the judge's body was discovered in the library by his youngest daughter with a bullet hole in his chest. The medical examiner declared it a suicide, but those closest to the judge knew this wasn't the case, that something darker had occurred. Because of the family's reputation, an inquest was set up to investigate the events leading up to the judge's death. Six months earlier, the body of one Peter Hollow was found bludgeoned to death in the courtyard of the boarding house he was renting a room from. Police stormed their residence, questioning neighbors and going door-to-door, searching rooms. It was during the search that a witness came forward and told the interviewing police officer that they had heard Peter engage in a heated argument late the night before, that they believed the man Peter was arguing with was Thomas Cooper, who lived one street over, though the witness couldn't remember why the two were arguing. Two police officers were dispatched to Thomas' residence. Thomas was found in his room and was asleep when the police began banging on the door. According to the police report that was filed and later presented in court, Thomas admitted to having an argument with Peter over damage to some personal property, but had been early in the evening in front of several other individuals who also lived in the same boarding house as Peter, and that Thomas had stormed off during the argument because Peter was refusing to acknowledge any damage at all, and therefore didn't see why any payment was due. However, upon searching Thomas's room, a damaged drum and two bloody drumsticks were found. Thomas was quickly arrested and hauled down to the prison cells, where he would wait until being presented to a judge in the case against him hurt. A week later, shackled and malnourished, Thomas was brought to court to answer to the crime of murder. 
The presiding judge was Peyton O'Connor. Thomas pleaded his innocence and was asked to present his side of the story. Court documents as Thomas quoted as saying, My name is Thomas Theodore Cooper of Bush Street, age 19, and I am innocent of the charge of murder against one Peter Hollow. I play drums in a small marching band located further uptown. We mainly play local parks to earn our daily wage. On the day in question, we did play in a park that morning and was then commissioned to play a small private party later in the afternoon, which doubled our normal daily income. On the way back to my lodging, I decided to stop off at the butcher to use some of my extra coins to buy a cut of meat for my dinner. While the butcher had begun to wrap my dinner, I heard something crash against my drum and saw Peter Hollow quickly leave the shop. I looked down to my drum and noticed the side had been damaged and a few of the ties that hold the drum head had been cut, rendering it unplayable. I went after him, quickly grabbing the meat I had ordered, which wasn't completely wrapped, and some of the blood and fluid spilt on my hands. I asked who the gentleman was who was left, and the butcher told me it was Peter Hollows. A little while later, I did approach him in the courtyard to show him the damage and demand payment. However, he became defensive and began yelling and refused to admit any damage to my drum, which is my only source of income. I walked off halfway through the argument as the conversation was going nowhere and to seek another course of action. I did not see Peter Hollows the rest of the evening due to me spending the rest of the night attempting to fix my drum. In response, the defense produced a witness, different than the one who initially identified Thomas, who stated that they were also at the butchers during the time in question that the damage to the drum was because Thomas had thrown it at Peter over dispute about money, hitting Peter in the head before crashing to the ground. The same witness testified that Thomas twice threatened Peter's life, once at the butcher's, then later that night in the courtyard where he had struck Peter in the head with what looked like sticks before running off into the street. To the actual murder, the witness hadn't seen anything, only to say that Peter did get up after Thomas had left and stayed in the courtyard holding his head, drinking whiskey. Another witness came forward to say that Thomas had a tendency to become violent and had lashed out another resident the week prior. Thomas denied the allegations, insisting he had never hit anyone in his life. It was, however, all in vain. After only a few days of testimony, Thomas was found guilty of murder, and Judge O'Connor sentenced Thomas to death by hanging. As Thomas was led to the gallows, his jailers walked him next to a bonfire they had made to make him watch as they threw his drum onto the flames. According to later accounts, Thomas simply put his head down and made his way to the executioner. His last words, before having the bag placed over his head, were, I am innocent, and I hold those responsible for all my death. I pray they meet the same unjust fate as mine. And that should have been the end of the story, as time continued forward and the whole matter had been forgotten. Jean Ann, the judge's oldest daughter, would write in her diary six months after the execution of Thomas Cooper. Monday, October 3rd. Father seems restless and distracted, and is always looking out the window. I asked him what was bothering him, and he grumbled about someone practicing their drums so close to the house, and how it was causing him to lose concentration. I asked him who was practicing their drumming, as I could neither hear nor see anyone. But he motioned to the window, and said they were out there somewhere, banging on a drum. In a letter to her cousin, James, dated October 6, Jean Ann wrote, Father has been very cross lately and spends large amounts of his days looking for this supposed drummer who has now apparently taken to practicing at night, preventing him from sleeping. I fear his mind is deteriorating. No one else in the house has heard anything of the sort. Things must have gotten worse. For the following week, James would send a reply reading, I shall be there shortly. Don't let your father out of the house. What the message was in response to, we may never know.
From the surviving records of the inquest, and James's own letters written after the death of his uncle, James arrived at the O'Connor household on October 15th and found the judge hysterical and anyone in the house afraid to approach him. James would later write in his diary, spoke with uncle, he looks like he has not slept in days nor has eaten. He had asked me several times to ride around the estate to flush out whoever is responsible for the drumming and report them immediately, which I obliged to do, and spent the whole of the afternoon looking behind every rock and tree, between any rock and in any crevice that an individual might hide, but found no indication anyone had been walking around the property. Surviving letters and subsequent testimony of the inquiry help us piece together the following course of events. The evening after James and her father spoke, Jeanne was walking by her father's room when she thought she heard two voices locked in conversation. One voice she could tell with her father's, the voice she had grown up with her entire life, while the other was less recognizable and was softer. Initially, she thought it was James talking in an attempt to soothe her father by using a gentler tone, but when she saw James exit his room and approach her from the opposite end of the hallway, Jeanne panicked, ushering James to the door of her father's room to listen and discern whom he might be talking with. They both listened for a few minutes, but neither one of them recognized the voice, but soon they heard the judge yell, no, stop, they rushed into the room. Not a light shined anywhere in the room, save from the faint moonlight coming from the window, which only illuminated some objects, but left the far side of the room in complete darkness. The room was cold. Huddled next to the bed was a judge, covering his head, weeping. James stepped forward and asked the judge what is going on and who he was speaking to, but all the judge kept saying, it's him. It's him. When Jean Ann asked who he was referring to, a soft voice whispered from the dark corner of the room, Thomas. The room froze, and both Jean Ann and James turned to the voice. But before they could speak, the soft voice whispered once more from the dark corner, It's Thomas. Fearing an intruder had entered the house, James dashed to his room to gather a pistol he had had, but upon his return, he found Jean Ann standing outside the door with her hand to her mouth as though holding back a scream. Upon entering his uncle's room, James noticed that not only had the room grown darker, that even those faint moonlight that was there was now gone, but it was now also colder. In the darkness, they could hear something moving back and forth. Not only that, from the darker part of the room came a low, heavy growl. Jeanne backed away further from the door until her back was against the wall opposite the room. And behind her hand, still raised to her mouth, she whispered, James. What is that? For several minutes, James, with his pistol raised and swerving back and forth across the dark room, demanded that whoever's in the room reveal themselves and be known. However, the movement and the growling continued as though no one had said anything at all. At James's last request for the thing to identify itself, the room became quiet, and from the corner where the growling was coming from, they could hear something shift its weight and begin to stand. James quickly aimed the pistols at the corner of the room where the animal was and fired. In the brief moment of light, James could see his uncle lying on the floor, a young man standing next to him, and in the corner stood on its hind legs a creature of great size, covered in hair, with two large bat-like wings and a fleshless skull for a head. In the returning darkness, both James and Jean Ann felt something rush out of the room past them and down the hall, followed by an icy breeze. The moonlight had returned to the room. Jean Ann rushed forward to her father and pulled his head and shoulders onto his lap as James lit a lamp whose light chased away the remaining bit of darkness still lingering in the room. Placing the pistol down on the side table, James helped lift up the judge, and soon afterwards they were placing him down the couch in the library, 
where he instantly fell asleep. Neither Jean Anne nor James knew who Thomas was and decided it was best to send her father far away from the house. The following morning, the maid reported fresh drops of blood in the corner where the creature had stood the night prior. Over the next few days, things began to calm down, and the judge, who now refused to enter his room, had been spending more time in the library at night where he had finally been able to get some rest. Though during the day, he still continued to walk up and down the halls, covering his ears, asking for the drumming to stop. As Jean Ann was making arrangements to send her father away in the hope to rid him of the torment, her younger sister and mother had returned home from a long family visit. On the night of their return, the faithful shout was heard throughout the house. The body of Judge Peyton O'Connor was discovered by his youngest daughter. Five days later, he would be buried on a rainy October afternoon. The inquest would later conclude that while they found James and Jean Ann's story riveting, they could see no other lines of reasoning that the judge had simply lost his mind and had for some reason committed suicide. Decades later, Jean Ann, writing about the incident to a curious journalist, would add her own conclusion. It's odd that they conclude suicide, as if they were unwilling to pursue any other options or even consider the possibility of a darker realm intervening. The pistol that ended my father's life has never been found, and James, God rest his soul, ripped apart not only his room, but the estate grounds looking for the pistol that he claims left in my father's room. He always held himself somewhat responsible for my father's death, for whatever apparition was in the house that night had taken the pistol, as well as my father, to the underworld with him. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe. We'll be releasing new dark stories every Monday, and we are sure you wouldn't want to miss out. If you like the stories and what we are doing here, please consider supporting the show with the links provided, or leave a tip if you like a particular episode. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Dark Stories from the Campfire.